My name is Eric Burke. And I'm Nipper Reed, and this is the Field Herpin Podcast. Over the coming months, myself and Nipper will be deep diving into all aspects of field herping. We'll be looking at target species, specific locations, herping in all parts of the world, equipment, safety, logistics, trip planning, live field reports, photography, snake bite, field herping pioneers, and just about anything else we can think of. So why field herping? I think I can speak for both of us when I say field herping is a passion. Nothing comes close to the thrill of chasing down a new species. The camaraderie of bonding on a field trip with the right people, and above all, the experience of seeing the reptiles and amphibians in their natural environment displaying their natural behavior. It's completely addictive. Folks, and welcome to the Field Herping Podcast. You could be listening to anybody, and you're listening to us, and we both appreciate it. On tonight's episode, we have a true field herping legend, the world-renowned herpetologist, TV adventurer and author, Professor Mark O'Shea, MBE. Mark was a massive influence on field herpers and herp keepers with his hugely popular herping TV series, O'Shea's Big Adventures. The series showed real field herping, the highs and the lows, the risk, the disappointments, and also the thrill of finding the target species. There were no setup scenarios, no pre-collected and chilled reptiles, no animal stress to cause reactions, really no false drama. There didn't need to be. The herping spoke for itself, creating generations of fans, of herp keepers and field herpers alike. Mark has authored some important and highly popular herp books, including The Snakes of Papua New Guinea, The Book of Snakes, a guide to the snake genus, a book which I was very pleased to contribute some photos for, Lizards of the World, Pythons and Boas of the World, and The Venomous Snakes of the World. We will list all Mark's books in the bio. Mark has worked with a number of snake bite projects in Papua New Guinea, Myanmar, and Sri Lanka and has worked with the world-famous Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine. Mark was the curator of reptiles at West Midlands Safari Park, breeding rare and endangered species such as the Aruba Island Rattlesnake, Chrysalis Unicolor, and the ornate Cantil, Agicestron Taylori. Mark lectures all over the world. He is a fellow of the Royal Geographical Society, the Linnaean Society of London, and the Explorers Club of New York. He is also honored by the Queen with the MBE. Mark embodies everything a true field herper should be, enthusiastic even after decades in the field. Gnarly having been envenomated several times by some serious species, and encouraging and helpful to fellow herpers. Mark is a professor of herpetology at the University of Wolverhampton, and is a passionate advocate for reptile conservation. If all that wasn't enough, Mark has discovered several new species of snake, and even has the honour of having a snake named after him. Mark has huge field herping experience on every continent. But for this episode, we talked with Mark about a subject that's close to my heart. It's no secret that whilst Nipper is fascinated by U.S. herps, 
I am addicted to Australian herping. And there is one particular part of Australian history that I'm particularly fascinated by, discovery and collection of the rough scale python. Mark was one of the pioneering expeditions into the extremely remote habitat of this fantastic species. But before we let him tell us the story, let's have a look at the history and biology of the rough scale python. The rough scale python, Morelia carinata. The rough scale python is one of the coolest pythons in the world. At the time of description in 1981, the rough scale python was known from a single preserved specimen at the Western Australian Museum in Perth. It had been collected by researcher Dr. Ron Johnstone during a fauna survey to the Mitchell Falls area in the Kimberley district of Western Australia. The tail is extremely prehensile, like other members of the genus Morelia, but they also have some very unique characteristics for a python. Probably the most well-known characteristic is their keeled scales. What is the purpose of the keeled scales, you might ask? Is it an adaptation to resist efforts from predators? John Weigel postulated that they have keeled scales for camouflage. They could blend in better with the branches of trees and the rough texture of the sandstone walls. They also have a, a very large round frontal scale. It forms a plate-like shield on the top of their head. And then there's the threat display. They do a threat display where they gape their mouths wide open to show off these crazy teeth. This threat is to show you that they mean business and to stay away. They have the longest anterior maxillary teeth of any python species, and these long teeth are believed to assist with catching its natural prey, the relatively long-haired rock rat and birds of the habitat. These teeth are usually hidden in the gum tissue of the mouth, even when the python gapes widely to a threatened perceived aggressor. Another interesting characteristic is that they change color from light to dark in a relatively short amount of time. It is not well studied why they do this. John Weigel mentions that he observed this, and they apparently turn a ghostly silver light color in the early hours of the night, and then they will turn a darker brown color when they are dormant or if they're sitting on a perch or if they're hiding. They are found in monsoon forests and sandstone gorges of the northwestern portion of the Kimberley District in Western Australia. Very few wild specimens have been observed, with most being from various gorges of the Mitchell and the Hunter Rivers. There is one report that one was found on Biggie Island. They are considered to be nocturnal and mostly arboreal. They are a medium-sized python growing around 2 meters, relatively slender, with a large head that is very distinct from the neck. At first, you may think they resemble a carpet python, but they are actually more closely related to a green tree python. Apart from its color and its keeled scales, this python looks quite similar to the green tree python that is from the opposite side of the continent. The mitochondrial DNA places them as a sister species to the green tree python. According to Rollins, they split about 25 million years ago. The theory is, is that much of Australia was becoming more and more arid, and this led to a split between the rough scales and the green trees. There is some thought that maybe the rough scales should be in their own genus and not in Morelia, but more work is needed. We asked Mark 
How did you get involved in the rough scale expedition? Well, the rough scale Python expedition was, let me see, the third film of the first shoot of the second season of O'Shea's Big Adventure. And um, there was something that happened before that because we nearly, we could quite easily have not been going to the Kimberley. The Kimberley. For many, the Kimberley is considered Australia's final frontier. Wild and remote, its massive region is three times the size of the UK and bigger than 75% of the world's countries. Amazingly, many people have never heard of the Kimberley, and there are lots of people who mistakenly believe that the Kimberley is in the Northern Territory. In fact, it occupies a rather large chunk of the northern part of Western Australia. The region has few sealed roads with plenty of dirt tracks offering intrepid travelers the ultimate opportunity for adventure. The raw beauty of the region must be seen to be believed. An excursion up the coastline offers magnificent scenery, including towering coastal gorges and waterfalls, a tidal phenomenon such as the horizontal falls. There is great fishing and ancient Aboriginal art decorating cave walls. A 4x4 expedition into the Kimberley's vast interior reveals pristine gorges and swimming holes, Aboriginal communities and cattle stations, sprawling savanna, and a few surprises such as the Zebedee Hot Springs, which is tucked amongst a forest of Livestona palms. Whether you see the Kimberley by land or sea, you will leave here feeling enriched and spellbound by the raw beauty of this isolated part of Australia. When I arrived in Sydney on the morning um, at the start of the shoot, I arrived with the cameraman and the sound recordist, and we met at the airport by the director and the producer. And he said, look, we'll drop everything off at the hotel, and we'll, we'll go to Hyde Park. This is Hyde Park, Sydney, obviously, not London, and uh, have a coffee and croissants and... I want to talk to you about the shoots because there's a problem with one of them, the last one, the Kimberley one, and I need to make sure everybody's happy to go ahead with the shoot. So that's what we did. And when we arrived in Hyde Park, it was really quiet. I mean, we walked across the road. I mean, it's normally busy. I've been there since working in the museum, and it's a it's busy thoroughfare, but it was really quiet. And I think there was something like a, a marathon or a, a road race, bike race, or something going on, and the, the roads were closed. And we walked into Hyde Park, and we walked to the um, the, the cafe, out, outdoor cafe, and there were two people just wheeling their bikes away. They'd obviously had an early coffee, and there was a waitress. And the, and the five of us sat down at the table, and while we're looking at the menu, a woman came down and sat at the next table and opened her newspapers and waited her turn. And we gave the the um, waitress our order and uh, the director said right okay now we have a problem with the last film the one in the Kimberley there's been an outbreak of tick-borne encephalitis um, in the region and it's a nasty disease I mean tick-borne encephalitis can kill you your brain swells up it's, it's particularly nasty um, and he wanted to make sure that we we're all happy to go ahead. And while we're sitting saying, well, yeah, that's fine. Um, this woman's voice said, um, is that my report? 
you're talking about. We looked across, and the only other person in the whole area, apart from the waitress, is this woman sat at the next table, and she's leaning towards us, and she said, I'm Vicky Krause. I wrote a report for um, Yorkshire Television in England about tick-borne encephalitis in the Kimberley region. And our director said, yes, that's us. I'm the director. <laughs> you know, uh, this is amazing. What a coincidence. And she said, well, I don't think you've got anything to worry about. It's, it's, it's in a different area to where you're going, but I wanted to make you aware of it. So we, 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 we all say, yeah, we're fine to go into the Kimberley. And then we got on to, well, how come you're here? Because this is a woman that wrote a report for us in England. And she, and she says, um, she turns out that she is the wife of, of Bart Curry. Now, I know Bart Curry is a snakebite doctor in the Northern Territories, and I've met him in the UK. And um, I happen to know he lives in Darwin, and I presume his wife lives there as well. I didn't know his wife. Um, and, but we're now sitting talking to his wife in Sydney. How, how come you're here? And she'd been at a conference somewhere, and um, her son... Um, was, I think, at Sydney, uh, University of Sydney and been taken ill and was in hospital or something similar to that. And on her way home, she dropped in to see him and she was now simply having a coffee to kill time before she went to the airport to catch her flight back to Darwin. Now, I mean, that is a really spooky coincidence. And it was a good way to start off the film with something as strange as that to happen because maybe it meant that we were going to find some of the difficult to find species that we were looking for if we were that lucky so there we go so that's how it all started we then made two films um before we went to the kimberley we made um um on the edge which was about um broad-headed snakes on the sandstone ridges in the blue mountains outside sydney um, and also in that film, we included the uh, Blue Mountain funnel web spiders. And we went looking for those. And then we made a film um, in the Pilbara uh, with Brian Bush, Pilbara Cobra, about a, a snake that had been seen by people that reared up in front of cars and things like that. And they, they nicknamed it the Pilbara Cobra. And of course, there are no cobras um, in Australia, so what is it? Clearly an elapid, but which one? And so we set out to catch as many elapids in the Pilbara as we could to try and determine what the cobra was. And then we went up to the Kimberley to make the third film. And um, we were going to be in the region with um, uh, John Weigel from the Australian Reptile Park. And... Uh, he'd got a pair of um, rough scale pythons in the collection at the um, Australian Reptile Park, which he was trying to captive breed. And he'd made a number of expeditions into the Hunter River Gorge where they are found, which is in a particularly remote part of the Kimberley. Now, if I remember my chronology correctly, the first two specimens that were seen weren't collected and this probably is in, in in the 70s or 80s the first two specimens weren't collected they were maybe photographed but they were left there the second collect the second ones were collected as museum vouchers when the species was described and i think john weigel 
had the third pair. He'd, he'd taken expeditions in, walked in, um, well, flown in and walked out, and they, they'd got this pair of snakes at the, at the Australian Reptile Park, and he'd got permits for another pair. Now, in between, I think another snake had been brought out. I think somebody who'd been on one of the Weigel expeditions had gone back off their own bat, found one and pinched it. Um, so that's a bit of a black mark, that is. But, but um, I think there were only six official specimens um, found at that point. Two were still in the, the gorge, presumably. Two were at Weigel's and two were um, the vouchers. So we were going to go in and try and find another pair of snakes. The director um, was interested in, in finding, well, one or do, because it is such a hard-to-find snake. And, you know, our chances of finding it were pretty slim, and we'd only got about 10 days to do it in. So we set off. from a place called Kununurra, which is up in the northern part of Western Australia. And we flew from Kununurra to the Mitchell Plateau in three um, fixed, small fixed wing aircraft, which would bring in the crew, um, John Weigel's team, um, the local wildlife officers, and all the kits and supplies to last us um, for the duration of the expedition. And it was quite unusual because I was sat taking photographs from my aeroplane of the other two aeroplanes flying parallel with us into, into um, Mitchell Plateau. And when we arrived there, we were going to be ferried by helicopter, and there are two helicopters available to do this, taken and dropped into the gorge. Well, not dropped, landed in the gorge with all our gear, and there'd be this relay of helicopters getting all personnel and equipment into the gorge. And the plan um, was to go to John Weigel's favourite camp, which he called Shangri-La, which was about halfway up the gorge from where the, from the, the sea to the big waterfall at the far end. And a uh, beautiful big gorge, all red rock all along the sides, massive, massive um, gorge. And um, that was the plan. So we'd all get dropped in. And when the helicopters came to deposit us, they couldn't fly us to Shangri-La because in the intervening uh, wet season, there had been a flood, a massive flood. It had come over the waterfall and it had brought down trees and rolled rocks. And the place looked like a war zone. I mean, the splintered trees with rocks on top of them. And we realized that we'd got too much equipment to hump everything halfway up to Shangri-La and when we went to look at the Shangri-La campsite, there really wasn't the space for us all there. So we decided we would camp down at the entrance of the gorge and walk in each day. And that's what we did, all except for John Weigel, who insisted on going to Shangri-La. Um, so every evening um, he would um, have his lunch, with his dinner with us in the evening, and then set off into the darkness to rock hop halfway back up the gorge to go to bed we 
we're all camping. I mean, my camp, I've got a, one of those Aussie sleeping systems, which is like a, I use it for photography as well. It's like a dome that you can put a sleeping bag in, although it's too hot for sleeping bags, with a fly sheet over in case it rains, which it wasn't going to do, and all my kit there. So I built quite an effective little campsite where I was based, where I could live and do all my reptile photography, which was extremely important to me as well. Um, we were at the end of the gorge where we had to be a bit careful by the water because we saw small saltwater crocodiles hanging about. And where you've got small ones, there's every chance you've got bigger ones. And the Kimberley is well known for its saltwater crocodile um, population. So if you were down collecting water or something like that, you had to be a little bit careful. And we went out every day and hurt the gorge looking for reptiles and amphibians, but specifically looking for rough scale pythons, working really hard. Um, I was going along the, the, um, the rock walls and there's, there's caves and gullies and cuttings and crevices and all sorts of things, the kind of places where you'd expect to find a python like this. And um, I was checking those out. And if you're doing that, if you're herping like that in broad daylight, don't even bother taking a torch. It's a total waste of time because torchlight cannot compete with the sunlight. If you're looking into a dark cave and you're out in the sun, your torch is just really not going to do anything. So what I was doing, I was using a heliograph that people use for signaling, um, either a mirror or, or a, one of those metal shaving, metal sh um, shiny stainless steel shaving mirrors, uh, things like that, because you can then use the power of the sun to your advantage. So you, you can catch the sun on it and reflect and look, uh, look around the entire cave system standing outside by just directing the sun in off this mirror. And there's a really good way to, to look for um, snakes. Uh, didn't find much in the way of snakes initially. Um, in the end, I, I did catch things like um, the, the banded um, tree snake, the boiger from the area and things like that. But mostly what I was finding in there were interesting geckos. There's lots and lots of really interesting uh, quite large, some of the large uh, pseudothecodactylus and things like that. Some very nice geckos. I probably photographed a dozen or dozen and a half different species of geckos while I was there. But of course, that's not what we're after. We're after rough scale pythons. And we're, we're so far drawing a blank and the days are ticking off. And then the one morning, John Weigel came into camp for breakfast and he's going, Look what I got, Mark O'Shea. Look what I got. And he's got a rough scale python. And apparently when he went back the night before, it was on a tree right in Shangri-La, right where he said it would be. So this was fantastic. We'd, we'd got what we'd come for. Um, yeah, I hadn't caught it, but that's not a prerequisite um, in Big Adventure. There's many times where my contributors uh, friends on on the shoots have found the species and not me that's how herping is as anybody that goes herping knows you know i don't have to find it it's a case of finding it whoever finds it and so we're very excited to get this and we did pieces of camera with it looked at this really really unusual python that at first glance looks like a slimline carpet python but then immediately you realize that it isn't 
because it's got those strongly keeled dorsal scales that are not like anything you see on any other python. And then there's that really large round frontal scale in the center of his head. And the only other snake I know that's got something on it like that is a, a particularly rare blind snake from Button Island, south of Sulawesi. Just a round scale on the top of the head. What's that for? Beautiful, beautiful snake. And so the director's really pleased because we've got what we've come for. We do pieces to camera about it and, and the whole shebang and wind up the film quite nicely. Anyway, we didn't find any more rough scale pythons getting to the end of the shoot. And um, we're going to be flying out. John Weigel and his team are staying longer because um, they've got another film, crumming, film crew coming in. And the funny thing about it was our director was called David Wright. And the director on the other film crew was called David Wright. And this was a film crew working with the American herpetologist Bruce Means. And John Weigel must have thought he was going mad because he'd before the shoot, he'd receive a phone call from David Wright. And he'd say, right, John, what's the plans? What are we going to do? Um, what, uh, how long do you think we'll need? Uh, what about getting supplies? Uh, how are we going to get transport in? And they'd discuss all of this. And the phone would go down. And then a day or so later, John Weigel would get a phone call from David Wright going, right, John, let's sort it out. Now, what are we going to do about getting into the gorge and this, that, and the other, and this? That? And he'd go, I've told you. No, you haven't. Yes, I have. I told you the other day. Um, we haven't spoken in months. No, I... What <laughs> he, he never realised, or didn't realise till very close to the shoots actually kicked off, was that both film crews had directors called David Wright. And he must have been thinking he was going crazy or something. But anyway, um, so Weigel's people are still out herping as my film crew are packing up. And the helicopters are starting to do the relay in reverse to get everything back up to the Mitchell Plateau. And I'm starting to break down my campsite. And I heard Alf Britton, who was one of John Weigel's team, shouting, Python, Python, Python. And he's, he's some way up a slope. I can't see him, but I can hear him. So I, I just dropped everything and ran. And, and you, you, the, the, the gorge is full of boulders. Um, you've really got to be good at, you've got to be a rock hopping penguin because you've got to jump from boulder to boulder to boulder. If you miss one, go down, you break your leg. So you've got to, you've got to have good balance. And I ran across, got across the other side of the gorge and I clambered up the slope um, to where, to where it, where he was. And he's, and he's there with another rough scale python. And he, he, he encountered a big Australian olive python which was in the process of eating this rough scale python. He had obviously just caught it and was about to make a meal of it. And Alf turned up just in time and went, no, you're not doing that. And he rescued the, the rough scale python, but he wasn't interested in the, 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 the olive python. He let that go. And this thing now is, is pouring itself down a hole. And I'm interested in both of them because I'm greedy. I want to photograph them both. So Alf's got the rough scale and I want to get this, this olive python, it's, it's a big one, and it's gone down the hole, and I'm lying 
half in the hole with my arms down trying to extract it. It's got its neck around a bend and doesn't want to come out. And I'm trying to get it out. And all the time, down in the valley, I can hear helicopters taking off. And I'm thinking, they're they're evacuating everybody. I hope they're counting heads. And don't forget, the presenter's still here because they'll all get back to the Mitchell Plateau and they'll go, well, where's Mark? And, of course, I'll still be with my arms in a hole grabbing a, 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 this olive python. So, anyway, I managed to get the snake out and we got both of them back to the camp and I was able to get all my photographs done and then fly out. And it was, it was, uh, it was a really good trip. Um, typical big adventure by the seat of your pants because that was the whole point of big adventure. You didn't know whether you were going to find what you'd gone looking for. That, that was the whole excitement. It created tension at times, but I think that was, that was good for, 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 for um, everybody because when you did find what you were looking for, the elation was incredible. Um, you know, this isn't a preordained movie where everything's today we'll do the capture of the rough scale python. No, it doesn't work like that. And of course, that does mean that you can fail. And we failed in 20% of our films, which is not a bad percentage because that is real field herping. We asked Mark what it was like finding this rare python. In the wild. Of course, our quest was to find rough scale pythons, in, and in the end, we did get two of them. Um, one in the eleventh hour as the helicopters are leaving. So I didn't have a lot of time to handle that one, but I did get to handle the one that John Weigel had brought down, and I said, I sort of thought it would be like holding a a, a fairly rough carpet python, and I've met a lot of carpet pythons in my time. But it wasn't. Um, it was much more gracile. It, it didn't have that that girth that you 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 see in in uh, carpet pythons, and that made the the head appear more angular and elongate. And of course, the scales when it moved and you felt the scales. It, it, if you'd shut your eyes and somebody held the snake and said, "Okay, what kind of snake is that?" You would never have gone, oh, it's a python, because simply the fact you were stroking it and you were feeling rough scales would have, by and large, ruled pythons out. You'd have been thinking of something else, because it, it is very rugose. And and I still can't figure what that large scale is for in the in the centre of the head. You know, nature nature doesn't do things for no reason. There must be a purpose for it, but I don't know what it is. Um, and their mouths have got a decent set of armory. I mean, they've got long teeth, like you'd see in a in a green tree python, which you might say would suggest um, uh, that they feed on birds. Maybe, maybe I I don't I'm not. See, people are keeping these in captivity. I've met them in the wild, and I met them at John Weigel's place, but I don't keep any reptiles now and i've never kept rough scale pythons so i could ask the python keepers what's it like to keep a rough scale python because i haven't done that i used to keep lots and lots and lots of snakes 
I don't anymore. It's it's not convenient for me because I need to be able to travel. And um, so, you know, whether it's a species I would have kept, I'm not sure. But they are very impressive, very different snakes. They're not like carpet pythons. Yes, Mark, if he had any thoughts on why the rough scale python has keeled scales. When you start thinking about keeled scales in snakes, you see them in two groups of snakes. And I don't mean taxonomic groups. I mean guilds that come from completely different habitats. You get them in aquatic snakes like keelbacks, and you get them in a lot of desert vipers. So here we have a, a, um, two very different environments, a lot of water and very little water. So it, it's it, it's quite obvious why um, arid habitat snakes would have keels because they can collect early morning dew or rainfall um, and the snakes can um, drink that off the scales. You know, in the same way that quite a few lizards have um, keels on their heads that direct the water to, to their lips and things like that. But I don't know why keelbacks are necessarily. Maybe that helps with holding slimy prey, like 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 um, Acrocordus, the tuberculate scales of Acrocordus are for gripping slippery prey in water. Which and of course now you you can get diving gloves that are, that have got little tubercles for gripping things underwater. I don't know. Um, it's a fairly arid area. Do the scales collect early morning dew or rain? I I, I don't know. I, John Weigel says camouflage. Maybe, maybe they br help to break up the outline. I, I'm. I think the jury's still out. I really wouldn't put my money on 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 any of the possibilities. Trip planning these days is a relatively easy affair. At the tip of our fingers, we have iNaturalist, Google Earth, weather reports, travel info, everything we need. We asked Mark what it was like planning a trip pre-internet. Sometimes when we're filming, the entire film is based out of a hotel. Um, that was certainly the case on the first um, film of the uh, second season, the one in New South Wales, we returned to a hotel every evening um, and went out every day to the, to the Hawkesbury Sandstone Ridges or the Blue Mountains or whatever. But that's not the norm. Um, much more frequently, we'll be living in um, fairly squalid rural community, you know, conditions um i mean i remember in india one time um swinging my feet out of bed putting them on the floor and immediately in the dark being covered in very very aggressive ants which bit the hell out of me in seconds and i had to run out of the room and i wouldn't go back because everything was black with these ants i hadn't put the light on so um sometimes pretty squalid accommodation like that so to be honest when we actually camp out you're making your own rules then. You're setting yourself up as you as you would like to. And this may be in hammocks or it may be in Aussie sleeping systems or you may just be 
bag on 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 the ground. So you know, just sleeping out under the stars um, takes some beating. You know, that's why people go camping. It it is it is really nice. And um, when we were in the Hunter River Valley, that's um, precisely what we did for whatever the ten days that we were there. And um, you you wake in the morning. You, you you wake with the lark when you're in the somewhere nice and warm like that. You, you can't stay in bed. Um, and um, we'll grab some breakfast and just do a general ablutions in the morning. I mean, uh, you know, basic shit kit is uh, a trowel for digging a hole, um, bog roll for wiping your backside, and waterproof matches for setting fire to the. Um, the bog roll um, in the hole before you fill it in. And that's a, a simple, basic kit. Um, and then obviously we'll have some breakfast or whatever. We're quite fortunate in the Kimberley because um, was, we were quite a large team. Okay, there's the, there's the five of us on the film crew, um, director, producer, camera, sound, and myself as a presenter. And then we've got John Weigel's people, and there were three or four of them, and then we've got the people from um, the wildlife authorities who are obviously there to make sure everything's done correctly, and so it should be. Um, and then we'd also got, because we're in a remote location, people often ask me, how, how often do you take a doctor? And um, sometimes we will have a doctor if it's in a particularly remote area where something that wouldn't kill you in suburbia could kill you. Um, sometimes we'll have a doctor and we did, we had a doctor with us, uh, and, um, we had a cook and that is very rare. We normally cook in for ourselves and I'm no cook. <laughs> I ain't cooking. I begrudge the time it takes, the time it takes out of herping to do cooking. Um, but I'm not a foodie either. So <laughs> I only eat to stay alive, but, um, we did have a cook and, We've got a limited um, uh, supply of, of of rations, but he was amazing what he was able to do with it. It was it, you you did look forward to something to eat in the morning. We would wouldn't break at lunchtime for anything like that. Um, it'd be just some biscuits or something, and then we'd have something to eat after it'd gone dark in the evening. And we spend most of our time out filming, out herping and filming, both daytime and a lot at night as well. Um, because, of course, everybody knows pythons are nocturnal, so we'd be out um, looking for them um, after dark. And, of course, that's a good time for the geckos and things like that. Um, and, of course, there's a lot of other things that go into making a film, a herping film, apart from, oh, look, there's a rough-scale python, let's catch it. You've got all these action sequences but you've got to sew them together. I, I, I liken it to a, a quilt. And I think this is a big American thing that uh, families make quilts and family members make the squares, but they're just squares of material until they're sewed together and they become a quilt. They're, they're no value until they're the quilt. And so um, you ha we have to do all the other stuff. That's, or if you imagine the action sequences, the finding of the animals, and all of that, and the pieces to camera where I'm talking about the animal, things like that. All of these, these are the squares that go into the quilt, but they're just a jumble of action sequences unless you sew them together. So this is where you need the, the footage where 
you're filmed walking over the rocks or if we're somewhere and we're using cars drive up up and past they're called where the car comes down the road to the camera and then you see the car going away from the camera and we've done them with boats we've done them with helicopters we've done them with airplanes we've done them with everything um i've done i've even done up and pass on elephants camels and water buffaloes so but these are all part this is all part of telling the story about how you got there and how you got about and these are the stitches that sew the sequences together and so this you can actually find that you lose you can lose entire days doing up and pass and all this other stuff whereas if you've gone herping you just go well let's go herping but you aren't going to end up with a film that you're going to be able to screen you need to tell a story and that means you need all this other stuff as well we need to know where we are we need gvs general views where the the a uh, cameraman will pick up panoramic shots of the habitat from many different angles some to, now you can do it with drones oh a drone would have been wonderful we could have just sent a drone up above the gorge and filmed us walking up the gorge but back in the day um we had to do that by having the cameraman hike all the way up to the top of the gorge and then film us walking up beneath and it's on one of those occasions we nearly had a fatal accident my cameraman des his son was in australia and he was a trainee cameraman and um des said to the director can he come on the shoot um and get some experience and i think the director said yeah he can come but i'm not paying him or i'm not paying him much or something like that so um des's son um came along on on the shoot so we were a six man crew which is unusual for us we're normally five and des and um his son and the the director up on the cliffs and they're doing some filming from up there and the director slipped he slipped and started to stumble and he was going over the edge there's absolutely nothing was going to stop him nobody could react except as his son who with the speed of youth grabbed him and pulled him back from certain death so i think when the director david said yes yeah, you can come that was probably the best decision of his life because he would absolutely have plummeted to the oh, hundreds of feet to the bottom that would have been that so that was just how the whole definition of an accident is it happens when you're least expecting it and we nearly had one there but this all ties into the daily routine and you know we go out we'll plan to herp the the cliffs the one day or we'll go up to a herp around There's, there was a big pool up there where i'd found freshwater crocodiles so you know the different areas add variety and so forth and this all is part and parcel of making the film interesting so that not just people who are aficionados of rough scale pythons but the general viewing public will enjoy it as well because it's important that everybody that watches it finds it interesting because i i've been doing expeditions to the tropics since the early 1980s and looking back now 
it'd be like looking back to how people did expeditions in the 19th century. Because there's so many things that we are um, familiar with now that we that we absolutely must have. I mean, sat navs, um, sat phones for emergencies, your laptop to record data, a digital camera. We used to shoot film. I took two cameras, the red camera and the green camera. They had dots on, two separate 100 mil macro lenses, two separate flash guns, and I never mixed and matched. And everything I photographed on film, I shot on both cameras in case one of the cameras had an issue and there was nothing, no decent shots out of it. So I, would, I was belt and braces. I shot everything twice on two separate cameras. Now with digital camera, you did, and you didn't know if you'd got anything. It was you'd you'd come all the way back with fifty films, pay two hundred pounds to have them processed, and then you, your heart would be in your mouth when you opened those boxes to see if you'd actually got any photos, or if they're out of focus, or they're all black, or something terrible. Now we've got digital cameras. You know if you've got the shot. It's it's just incredible. We had none of that. We had none of that. Uh, and, I mean, even communicating home. When I'm away now, I can, I can communicate back to here with, in real time with FaceTime or Skype. We had none of that. When I was in Brazil, I spent seven months in the northern Amazon for the Royal Geographical Society conducting a herpetological survey of a biological reserve and I lived on the research station for five months during the wet season and two months during the dry season and what we didn't have with us we couldn't get I mean we were be largely self-sufficient we would have truck coming out from Boa Vista um, once a week bringing supplies food and, and beer and essentials like that but if you hadn't got a piece of equipment you hadn't got a piece of equipment and and um when I used to communicate home from there, I used to write to my parents. I'd, say, I'd, I'd write an airmail letter on thin airmail paper and put in an envelope. And the next time the truck came out, I'd give it to the driver for them to take it and uh, stick a stamp on it um, in Boavista and post it. And maybe a week or so later, maybe 10 days later, my parents would get the letter and then they would reply and maybe 10 days after that, I would get their reply. I mean, now you can email people. It's just bizarre when you think what we did. Um, and it, I think we were quite close to the way they did things in the 19th century, except that the airmail letters were flown now, whereas they went by ship back then, and it took a lot longer. So the whole idea of planning expeditions and back in the 80s and earlier in the 70s was very different to the way it is now. Um, nowadays, you want to go somewhere, you can contact people on Facebook and ask them how they how they got on or their contacts. You can make contact with the people in the area you're going to. Um, you can you can check what the weather's likely to be. Um, just so you can you can use Google Earth and fly over where you're planning to go and have a good look at it. Um, 
everything can be arranged so much more easily. And then, of course, there's the actual in the field. What happens in the case of an accident? If somebody has an accident now, you can medivac them. You can get um, probably get a medivac in very, very quickly um, and have them taken out and their lives saved. But back in the 1980s, we didn't have those luxuries. And I did have an accident. Um, late one afternoon, well, I'll tell you first how we communicated with Boa Vista. We were between five and six hours drive from Boa Vista. Um, and the bridges en route, you often had to take planks from behind your vehicle to put in front of your vehicle to drive over the bridge. So because there were holes, you had to sort of build the bridge as you went. So it would sometimes take a lot of hours to get in, it back into Boa Vista. Um, and we used to communicate um, twice a day. We'd do a sit rep. And we used those old, um, you've, you've seen them in films in the 1940s, um, radios, you know, I don't know, shortwave radios or what, but with dials. And you would do a sit rep to base at six o'clock in the morning and you do another one in the evening. And these radios ran off car batteries. Um, so, because of course we've got no mains power, we've got a generator and that didn't always work. So we, for the, for the radios, we, we'd have often car batteries. And a sit rep would be sort of like, uh, they'd switch on the radio in Boavista. Our um, radio operator, Amazonas, he'd switch on our radio. And the discussion would be like, okay, um, we've run out of beer. Can you send some out on the next supply run? Um, and they would say to us, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, um, we're, we've got two Brazilian entomologists coming out. Can you get a room ready on the research station? So that's the sort of daily chat that would go by. And then at 10 past six, morning, evening, the radios would be turned off again. And that would be it. And I found a small rattlesnake. I caught, I caught six rattlesnakes on the project. And two of them were bigger than Eastern Diamondbacks. They're humongous snakes. They're, they're, they're as long as I am tall. Um, but this was a small one. I'd caught it just on the edge of the research station. And I'm photographing it. And I've rigged my camera to get headshots of snakes like this so that I can operate. The, I, I've got the camera over my shoulder and it's got a, 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 a rifle stock into my arm. So I push back and steady it. And then I, I, offer, I operate the entire camera, focus and the shutter with my left hand. And then I hold the rattlesnake behind the head and I bring its head into focus and when it's in focus in frame i press the shutter and i get my photograph and i was busy doing that when sarah the nurse came over to me and she said oh mark what are you doing and i said well i'm just ouch uh, i must have just for a moment slackened my grip on the snake and it took the opportunity to turn and bite me in the th thumb can't remember, thumb or finger. And I, I naturally, I dropped the snake and 
caught it with the other hand and boxed it so that we hadn't got a small rattlesnake scooting around the place. But I have now just been tagged. Fortunately, I think only one fang, but I've just been tagged by a rattlesnake on a research centre in the northern Amazon, um, at least six hours drive from the nearest town. So what to do about it? It's a habit that I've always done. If I have a bite or any sort of accident, I look at my watch. I always check the time because the first thing you're going to be asked is, what time did it happen? And so it's instinctively I look. I don't wear a watch at all now, but I used to just look at my my wrist and um, it was half past six in the evening. So it's 20 minutes after the radios have been turned off and in 11 and a half hours before they're going to be turned on again. Now, today you'd be on the sat phone. You'd have a myriad of ways of communicating, not just with Bar Vista, but with the UK, with America, with anywhere. No, we didn't then. So I've got to survive 11 and a half hours. And so I went to our first aid room and lay down and Sarah and I started to monitor my bite to see how I was getting on. We did have antivenom. We had seven packs of Instituto Butantan Anticritalico. So that's the Brazilian antivenom from the Butantan Institute. And it is rattlesnake antivenom. That's the good news. The bad news is it's the liquid form, not the lyophilized powder form. And that means it has to be kept in a fridge between two and eight degrees C. And our fridge runs off a generator and doesn't run all the time. So very often it wasn't between two and eight degrees C. It was considerably higher than that. And that is what you refer to as cold chain broken. And normally you would never be given drugs that were cold chain broken. No doctor would risk it. And looking at the antivenom, it was a bit cloudy. Um, it should be crystal clear and it wasn't. So you're thinking, mm, OK, we've got antivenom, but really don't want to use it. So we didn't. And I was doing quite well until about three o'clock in the morning when suddenly the swelling advanced up my arm and it was above my elbow. So half the bitten limb is now swollen. And that is a contraindication for the administration of antivenom. So Sarah and I discussed it and we decided, yes, um, we've got a long way to go yet. Another five hours, uh, another, no, another three hours before they're going to turn the radio on and longer before we'd get a medivac. So I'm afraid I'm going to have to have the antivenom. And so she did the correct thing. Um, she made the antivenom up in a, in a polyfuse in a drip um, so that she can, could control the rate of infusion. You don't do, you don't inject antivenom with a syringe like you'd see in a John Wayne movie. It's, it's in a drip. And she started the drip. And within a very short time, I was beginning to have some pretty unpleasant symptoms. My scalp felt electrified. All my hair felt like I was, it was, I was in a Van de Graaff generator. It all felt static. And um, I had lumps coming up in my mouth like gumboils. And I could feel that my throat 
seemed to be closing so I couldn't get air as well as I could previously. But for me, the most frightening was I went blind. Now, I don't mean black blind where you can't see a thing. Think of a television with no aerial, that sort of white noise. All I could see was white noise. Now, I don't know. It's obviously the anti-venom, not the venom. But I don't know if this is for 10 minutes, 10 hours or forever. I don't know if I've gone permanently blind which is a bit worrying. And I told Sarah and she immediately stopped the infusion and she gave me a big dose of adrenaline and slowly all the unpleasant symptoms dropped away and my vision came back. Great. But I do still need that anti-venom. So she started the infusion again, but at a slower rate. And I en ended up having the seven packs of cloudy um, Institute of Butantan Anticritalico. And at six o'clock, Amazonas was on the um, radio to base and um, he said, look, we need a medivac. And they said, certainly right, this will take time to sort out. And so they tried to stay on the radio. Um, I think the guys were finding car batteries, trying to get the generator going to make sure that we didn't lose um, radio contact. And I just had to wait. Um, and then we got news that, a, that a, a medivac was on its way. And so the guys carried me out of the first aid room and we got this old, it was a, it looked like a Jeep, but it wasn't a Jeep. It was called a Jag. I think it's a Brazilian vehicle. And it was a knackered old thing. It was the only vehicle we'd got on the station. And all it was for was going the two kilometers down the causeway to pick up supplies and come back up to the camp. So um, they, they put a, a mattress in the back of that and they put me on that. And I was driven down the causeway to, to the Rio Araraquara, which is the river that completely. So we're working on an island in the North Amazon that is completely surrounded by um, rivers. An island, 100,000 hectares big island and um they took me out uh, out of the jeg and they brought me into an amerindian dugout canoe and this fella paddled me across the river and then they took me out on the other side they brought me into an old bandaranchi land cruiser brazilian land cruiser and they drove me up to this fazenda and eventually this light aircraft came in and they'd taken all the seats out and they put a mattress in the back of that. And one of our team from Boa Vista, um, Fiona, had come with the pilot because he didn't know where Ilamarica was um, in up, up in Horaima. He didn't know where it was, so she knew it. And so she came to guide him in to get to the right place. And I was quite looking forward to the flight because I thought I'll actually get to see what the environment looks like from up in the air, maybe wasn't to be because I was having another bad reaction to the anti-venom. So um, Sarah gave me another um, belt of uh, adrenaline um, to help me through that. And it just knocked me out. I just went to sleep. I didn't wake up until we touched down in at Boa Vista Airport. And I, I sort of staggered off the, the aircraft to find out where I've got to go next. 
Um, and the director of the Royal Geographical Society, Dr. John Hemming, was running towards me, and so were the, the two Brazilian bosses from Impa and Sema. So all the bosses were happened to be in, in, in Boa Vista. And I was put into this ambulance, which I think it's a, probably an American vehicle, but it's just an estate car. And it was, I can only describe it as a, an Adams family ambulance because it was, it was painted white, but it, it, it was just one of these old ornate um, Cadillacs or something like that that could easily be painted black and turned into a hearse. And I'm slid in on the gurney, so my nose is nearly touching the roof. And then the sirens started wailing, and they made me go cold because it was such a noise. It was a horrible noise. They took me to the hospital. And when I arrived at the hospital, I discovered that every patient had to have a drip, either normal saline or dextrose. And I don't know how they decided which one you got, but I was determined I wasn't going to have either because um, this is 19... 87 and this was when AIDS was just taking hold and there was a lot of controversy about hospitals in developing countries boiling needles and reusing them which of course won't stop wouldn't stop um, transmission of AIDS so I was pretty damn certain that nobody was coming near me with anything pointy and my Portuguese is not very good. But standing on your bed and bawling your fists and threatening to punch anyone who gets within range is an international language. And eventually they just thought, well, leave the gringo. Don't bother. Don't give him a drip. Just leave him. So they left me be. And I'd already had my venom, so I didn't want any more of that. And um, I managed to get discharged the following day. And within two days after that, I was back on the research station. And there was a massive, because Brazilians, they love parties. There was a massive party to celebrate my survival and my return. And all the, the Brits, and the, there was a few Americans there, and all the Brazilians and the Colombians, they're all having a great time drinking alcohol. And I wanted to join in, but my... Brazilian girlfriend said wouldn't let me. Um, she she insisted that because I'd had a snake bite and had antivenom, alcohol was the last thing I needed. God save us from sensible women, um, because I didn't get to have a drink. But I was back on the station and able to get back to work. You've heard to Australia how many times? First time was the Second World Congress of Herpetology, which I think was in ninety. Uh, 93 or 94 I was I was filming there in 2000 and 2001 and I made the first shoot was entirely Australia that was New South Wales and two in Western Australia then on other shoots we did um, a film about sea snakes who were in Queensland and then we're in Ashmore Reef off Western Australia. And I did a film in Tasmania. So I think I did five Australian films in Big Adventure. 
And I've been back there as a guest of the Australian Herbological Society and the Victorian Herbological Society and been out herping with them. And I, I mean, when, I, when I'm in Australia a lot now, I've been working in the museums, obviously, because I'm a big project on the snakes of New Guinea. And so I, I end up looking at more dead snakes and live ones. But I'm, I'm sort of will spend um, a fortnight working on snakes in the Australian Museum literally every day or or in, in the museum in Adelaide or the museum in, in Melbourne. And then if the local herpers, I'll get a bit of field time with them. I haven't done as much field herping as some of my friends who purely go to Australia to go field herping. Um, but But sort of like because I've got other things that I'm doing, the, the academic side of things, that's had to take priority sometimes. But I always like to get in a few days of field herping with the local herb society when I'm in an area, you know, in, in Adelaide or, or, or Melbourne or Sydney or wherever, um, when I'm over doing museum work. And I'm hoping when this is all over that I can get back out there again you know, uh, but there are places I'm not. I've not done anything in in the, in the centre. I've not been to Alice Springs, and I know you know there'll be loads of herpers who have. I've done. I haven't done a huge amount um, up in Northern Territories either. You know, um, so there's there's big gaps. But it's you know what what I, I need to be in museums first. Is there, is there a particular Australian species that you'd like to see in the wild? Oh well, I suppose everybody'd like to see Oxyuranus temporalis, wouldn't they? The 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 um, uh, what's the Western Ranges or Western Taipan, this newly described species. Everybody like to see that. But you see, I've I've not seen inland Taipan in the wild. Um, in fact, have I? I don't know if I've seen coastal Taipan up in Queensland. I know plenty of people who have. I've seen more than enough Papua and Taipan. <laughs> I mean, in in one week we saw four, in one location in Papua New Guinea we saw forty six. I managed to catch ten of them, and I, I got six of those. Um, and those were were for um, anti venom production. Uh, so I've seen more than my fair share of. I mean, I caught my first Papua and Taipan in nineteen eighty six, um, when I was trekking with a team from Raleigh, Operation Raleigh. With my, I got four venturers with me, and there's a Taipan on the trail. And they're trying to get my rucksack off me so that I'm lighter. I'm trying to pin the Taipan, and I've got malaria. <laughs> I caught, so I caught my first Taipan recovering from malaria. So that was a bit lucky, I guess. Um, I declined to try and catch a black mamba once in South Africa when I was seriously ill because I felt that that was just giving that snake too much of an edge. I just watched it. It looked at me. It came down the tree. And we're looking at it, and I'm going... No, I'm not. Look at it. It's, like, it's saying, "Come on, then. If you think you're big enough, and I, I'm no, I'm not. I'm not. You're right. You, you. And it looked at me, and then it went down a hole. And I thought, "That's fine. I'm I, <laughs> taking you on when I feel like I do. That's suicide." What piece of kit do you always take into the field? Um, <laughs> uh, a snake hook and uh, and a bush knife. <laughs> I want to bush knife is the pap the Papuan word for a machete. I've got. I've got mine that I've had for years. Um, I, 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 it, it was made in Ecuador. I bought it in Venezuela. I had a scabbard made for it in Brazil. Now, that's all in the 80s. And I've carried it ever since. Um, but it's really for, for blazing trails, not defending yourself. 
But, uh, you know, it's when we were in Nepal, trekking in Nepal, um, the, the Nepalese would buy a goat every day. I don't like goat. I hate goat meat. But they'd buy a goat and it would follow us on a piece of string all day. And then that night they would butcher the goat and that was the evening meal. And um, they 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 found out how sharp my 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 machete was, so they used that for beheading because the, they have to do it in one swipe. And they're beheading the goat with my machete, and having seen the goat's head come off, I'm thinking I'm feeling pretty safe with that blade when I'm somewhere dangerous. <laughs> Again, this is a difficult question for yourself, but. What species would you like to see in the wild more than any other that you haven't seen? Uh, I don't know more than any other, but there are species I'd, I'd really like to meet. And one's Cropan's, but Cropani's boa. Now, um, the, the only specimens, I think there were two, they were in the Instituto Butantan in Sao Paulo, um, and when I was filming in Brazil, I did some filming in Butantan. We had guys from Butantan with us when we went to Ilha Camada Grande to look for the um, um, uh, the, the pit viper, the golden lancehead. And I did a piece to camera about Cropani's boa, and I'd got the preserved specimen. I've got photographs of this snake that was collected in the 1950s. Now, people are concerned about the Amazon rainforest and the fact that it's been destroyed, and so we should be. But a lot of people don't realize that the Atlantic coastal forests of Brazil are about 95% gone. And we made a film about the Atlantic coastal bushmaster, which is very localized. And we did actually find it, absolutely for real, half past 12 on the last night, after midnight, we found one. So in, in, in a small patch of rainforest, we searched three states to find that. Um, but the Atlantic Coastal Forest, this snake, Crapani's boa, was from the Atlantic Coastal Forest, and it was thought to be extinct, and the only specimens were the ones in the Butantan, and I've met those specimens, I've had them out of the jar, I've handled them, I've photographed them, and so forth. I even did this piece to camera um, on, 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 um, on a beach, actually. It was an odd place to do it with this jar, talking about this snake. I can't remember if it actually made it into the film, but it was quite difficult because there was a guy who wanted to be in the film behind us and he was he was doing handstands and everything on the beach to try and try and behind me. To, and so the cameraman's having to frame me with the jar to block out this guy doing all sorts of acrobatics down the beach, trying to desperately get on, on camera. But sadly, I think it would be, what, 2010? Uh, Butantan caught fire and burnt down. A lot of museum collections have gone. There was the one in, uh, I think, one in Rio de Janeiro. There was one in Lisbon in Portugal in 1978 with all the Timorese specimens. You know, you've got 70% um, ethanol and, and you know, gallons and gallons of it, and it, it burns. It's flammable. And so museum collections are are, are um, extremely vulnerable to fire. You're not allowed to smoke around... Well, I don't smoke anyway. But you're not. I'm not. If I took it up, I wouldn't be allowed to smoke around specimens and things like that. And if you go to the museum in Berlin, there's their spirit rooms. You have to actually wear um, special static uh, electric discharges on your boots in case you initiated a spark and started a fire. Well, Boot Institute of Butantan, marvelous collection of of specimens going back decades. 
and it burnt down. It was all lost. And the type specimen, um, the two specimens of, of Kropani's boa are gone. And that's it. Um, and I know the Brazilian lads there, uh, Kiko Franco and the rest, they're absolutely devastated by the loss of the Butantan, as, as the scientific world should be. Um, but the snake has been found again. A few years ago, it was found, live specimen, and um, they're right, they're, the Brazilians are doing radio telemetry on it. They're tracking it now and they're learning more about it. And I hope they keep the location secret. You know, so I would love to see one of those in the wild. Um, I'd love to see one of those alive. It is a bit special. So there's snakes like that that are pretty iconic. Um, but there are some pretty small and less impressive snakes that, still, that, that just press my buttons just as easily. Is there anywhere, any particular area you want to hurt that you haven't been able to hurt as yet? Yes, there are several. Top of my well, I I I want to do Western New Guinea. I need to get, do Western New Guinea um, because all my work on that is I've looked at an awful lot of specimens, and the collections are smaller there than they are from Papua New Guinea. But but I've I've looked at a lot of that material. But there's gaps in the knowledge that I'd like to fill in. Um, but the place that's top of my list is Socotra. It's an island. It's a it's a it's an island with three small islands just off it. Um, it's owned by the Yemen, which isn't a very healthy place. Um, and it's halfway to Somalia, which isn't a very healthy place. You can't, you, it's, you, you wouldn't go there by boat. Um, you'd fly in, but it's a very, Somalia's, I mean, Socotra is really unusual. The whole ecology is unusual. The trees look like they've been planted upside down. It's a very, very weird place. It's not big on snakes. It's got some thread snakes, uh, leptotiflopids. Um, the, it's got, a, it's got a, a couple of endemic colubrids. Um, there's no venomous snake supposed to occur there, although the story is about a cobra and drawings of a cobra, but nobody really knows if there is one there. Um, the thing that's really unusual about it is the degree of endemicity. Like, for instance, skinks, skinks and geckos it's phenomenal um the the genus hemidaculus the house geckos of which there are over 100 species there are 10 species on socotra and eight of them are endemic um there's the genus hemidracon the dragon tree geckos they're only found there. there's two of those there's a bunch of stuff that that is only found on that island but, um, you know, getting permission to go there is, 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 is probably a friend of mine. Well, I think two of my friends have been, I was offered, I was offered the chance to go there, um, one time with three elderly French entomologists in a small car and, and, um, no offense to the French, um, but I don't think that these three elderly French entomologists spoke English or not very much. And the idea of driving around hot desert island in a small car with three French entomologists who probably <laughs> would not be very keen to have me on board. I was offered this opportunity and I thought, no, probably best not for both me and for them. 
I'd probably be just as irritating to them. <laughs> so I didn't go. A friend of mine has been there, and he got he got there from the UAE because with all what's going on in the Yemen and the concerns about the the rebels being supplied by Iran, there was a concern that I, I suppose it was concerned that Iran might try and book troops on on um, Socotra. So the the UAE put troops on Socotra. My friend's able to go with them, um, and I'm quite envious. Uh, but it's it's not one of the safest places. I would probably when you're there, it is. But it's it's because you wouldn't want to fly in through Sanana in in Yemen. It's just you know it's one of the world's hotspots at the moment, and not in a good way. You have ecological hotspots, and then you have military hot, warring hotspots, and if you're a naturalist, you tend to stay away. Like, for instance, when we were filming, every when we were doing O'Shea's Big Adventure and we were planning the 13 films for the first and second seasons, um, we would plan 16 films because we knew we'd lose some. We were due to go to um, Honduras in the first season because uh, I'd worked in Honduras before. We were going to go to Honduras. And then one of the hurricanes, it might have been Mitch, came through and caused a lot of destruction and killed a lot of people. And I just felt it wasn't right to be going to a devastated country and making a film about wildlife, potentially standing on the bodies of people killed by a hurricane. So we pulled that. Um, when we were doing the second season um, in Australia and the Pacific, we had a film planned on Carusia in the Solomon Islands, but then the uh, Guadalcanal and Malaita, the two, two, two islands, you fly into Malaita and we'd have gone to Guadalcanal, the two islands ended up fighting each other. And so that had to come off. Because, you know, you, if, if it's a war zone, you, 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 we're not a, a, a war uh, film crew, we're not a news film crew, we're natural history film crew, and you wouldn't get insured for doing it. And um, we also we were planning to go and make a film um, in Fiji, I wanted to look at the Ogmodon vitianus, but it's a tiny little snake, so we'd have needed to look at Fijian iguanas as well. And at the time we were planning that, then there was a there was a coup when a, um, a Fijian Australian tried to initiate a coup and arrested the entire parliament, and and it all got very nasty there. And so you couldn't go to Fiji. And um, we were planning a film on MacMahon's viper on the Pakistan-Afghan border. And then 9-11 happened. And so you don't even need to check the Foreign Office website. You are not going to the Pakistan-Afghan border to make a film about a desert viper when not when the um, Afghan war's on. That's a no, you know, and you've got Al-Qaeda and, 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 and the Taliban. Oh, yeah, we're just filming snakes. Yeah, okay. That's so, so we used to lose films because of things that political events or whatever that um, overhauled us. So we always used to plan more than we could make. We asked Mark what advice he would give young Herpers. Today. It's all well and good going to remote locations and finding fascinating creatures and seeing unusual behavior. And the most that some people do is then come back and, put up a photograph on Facebook and tell their friends and that's it. 
a few days later, it's spooled down off Facebook and it's gone forever. And that's a shame because one of the best ways of building your reputation as a field herpetologist is to publish, publish your observations. There's plenty of avenues for this. Uh, journals like um, the Herpetological Review in um, the United States or Herp Notes in Europe or um, the African Herpetological Society's journal or Herpetofauna in Australia. And these will, the, all of these will take short notes. They have to be written in a certain format. So you may want to um, get the help of somebody who's done this before. But they will take interesting notes. Now, when somebody sees, say, a snake eating something very unusual, that you go, you know, you take a photo and, yeah, great. Get as many photos as you can. Note the time. Note the weather. Note the date. Get all this data down. Identify both species. What is it eating? Try and get photos of that. Get it fully documented. And when you come back, don't just see it as, a, as an interesting post on Facebook. See it as something more. Get it published. Because if it hasn't been published, it hasn't happened. And if you publish it, for instance, I was filming in Guyana. And one evening, late in the afternoon, early evening, I caught an anaconda of probably about, nah, not a big one, eight, nine foot snake. And I've got a photograph with a, a friend from the expedition. We're holding this snake. And if you look in the photograph, you can see that its belly is a bit swollen. So it had clearly eaten something. But at the time, I didn't notice that. And I thought, well, I want to photograph this anaconda properly. Um, get get pictures of it coiled up, get close-ups and all of that. I want to measure it. I want to sex it um, and document it properly. So I'm not going to do that this evening. I'll do that in the morning. So where am I going to keep this snake overnight? In my science area, we'd got a, a, a camp, base camp. We were, we were in that location for several days. So I've got a base camp. I've got my science area set up. And I'll look for something big enough to put the anaconda in. There wasn't a box or anything. So... I thought, I know, my sheet sleeping bag. Um, I'm not using it. It's far too hot at the moment. So um, I'll put it in that. So I got the bag, put the snake in it, knotted it, and left it in the science area. And the following morning, I got up, and I went over, and I thought, what's that horrible smell? Oh, it appears to be coming from my sheet sleeping bag. And I opened the bag, and out came the anaconda slimmer than the night before and i tipped out the bag and out came its stomach contents it had regurgitated its last meal in the bag and its last meal was a smaller anaconda this was a case of cannibalism the larger anaconda had eaten a smaller anaconda there was no it wasn't that they were both eating the same prey and the larger one carried on the lights went out for the small one there was nothing else there it had deliberately eaten another anaconda and this was the first case of cannibalism in green anacondas. So um, when I got back, I wrote that up and published it in the Herpetological Review, the first case of cannibalism in green anacondas. You do need to do your research 
and make sure that what you're reporting hasn't been reported before. There's nothing wrong with the second instance of it, something happening, but if it's the first, that's really important. So I published that. And that's been cited a great many times since. Um, even Mr. Anaconda himself, Jesus Rivas, has, has quoted my note on um, Anaconda eating another Anaconda. And as for the sheet sleeping bag, I've never used it for its original purpose since. Um, I've washed it several times. Um, sort of got rid of the smell. But there's a dirty, great big brown stain and it does not feel it's not not very conducive to sleeping in it so that has now been consigned to um being my big snake bag should i catch something of that size again and need to hold it overnight wow what can i say to hear from someone like marco shea that was just episode one we have episode two coming up when that focuses more on papua new guinea and his adventures there you know, Mark is such an inspiration. He has seen things that uh, most of us will only dream about. I'm glad we were able to get his account of the Rough Scale Python story and that expedition. If you want to get in touch with us, email us at info at moreliapythonradio.com. Thanks for listening. Field Her Podcast out.